Section 32 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey DeSena, Coeur d'Alene. Chapter 9, Germany and the Empire, by T. F. Tout. Part 2. The history of the Diet of Cologne of 1505 brings out clearly the different position now attained by king and estates respectively. To this Diet Maximilian came triumphant from his hard-earned victory in Gelderland, attended by a great crowd of enthusiastic nobles and soldiers. He had no longer to face his ancient enemies. Berthold of Mainz had died in the midst of the Lanshut troubles, worn out with disease and anxiety, and already conscious of the complete failure of his plans. His former ally, John of Baden, elector of Trier, had died before him in 1503. Their successors, Jakob of Liebenstein at Mainz and Jakob of Baden at Trier, were more creatures of the king, and the latter, Maximilian's near kinsman. Hermann of Hesse, the elector of Cologne, had never been much of personal importance, but now was quite content to float in the royalist tide. The Count of Palatine Philip, the chief of the select the chief of the secular opposition since his reconciliation with Berthold, had suffered so severely during the Landshut succession war that he dared no longer to raise his voice against the king. The young elector Joachim of Brandenburg, who had succeeded to his dignity in 1499, was eager to put his sword at the service of Maximilian. Of the old heroes of the constitutional struggle, only Frederick the Wise of Saxony remained, and without Berthold's stimulus, Frederick was too passive, too discreet, and too wanting in strenuousness to take the lead. Yet his pleading for the disgraced elector Palatine, unsuccessful as it was, was the only sign of opposition raised from among the electors in this diet. Even more devoted to the crown were the princes who had won their spurs in the Bavarian War, and the prelates who owed their election to court influence. Well might the Venetian ambassador report to his republic that his imperial majesty had become a true emperor over his empire. Encouraged by the prospect of the unwanted support of his estates, Maximilian took a real initiative in the question of imperial reform. In a speech in which he could not conceal his bitter hatred of the dead elector of Mainz, he urged the establishment of a new council of regency, dependent upon the crown, resident at the imperial court, and limited to giving the king advice and acting under his direction. But the Diet had had enough of newfangled reforms. Let his majesty, said the estates, rule in the future as he has ruled in the past. They also rejected this scheme when Maximilian put it before them in a modified form, which allowed the electors and princes a large voice in the appointment of the council. Equally averse was the diet to the novel method of taxation. Maximilian soon withdrew a proposal for a new common penny, and cheerfully contented himself with the proffer of an army of four thousand men, which he proposed to employ to protect his ally Ladislas of Hungary from the revolted Hungarian nobles under John Zapolia. For the expenses of this and of other supplies, money was to be raised by the matricula, that is, by calling upon the various estates of the empire to pay lump sums according to their ability. The matricula ignored the union of the empire and the obligation of the individual subject, which had been emphasized by the common penny. But king and subjects had alike ceased to look upon the empire as anything but a congeries of separate states. Save in the matters of the Council of Regency and the Common Penny, the Augsburg reforms were once more confirmed by king and estates. 
The Landfrede of 1495 was solemnly renewed, and orders were given to revive the Kammergericht, which had ceased to meet during the recent troubles. For two years, however, the restoration remained on paper, until at last the Diet of Constance in 1507, which in more than one way completed the work of the Diet of Cologne, approved of an elaborate scheme for its reconstitution. By this ordinance, the imperial chamber took its permanent shape. At its head was still to be a Kammergerichte, chosen by the king and sixteen assessors representative of the estates but while at worms in 1495 the assessors had been appointed by the king with the council and consent of the estates the method by which the election was now arrived at was particularist rather than national the assessors were henceforth to be nominated by the chief territorial powers two were named by maximilian as duke of austria and lord of the netherlands the six electors similarly had a nomination to a seat, and the remaining eight assessors were to be appointed by the rest of the estates, grouped for the purpose into six large circles. The place for the session of the court was still to be fixed by the estates. After a year at Regensburg, it was to be established at Worms. To please Maximilian, who preferred an ecclesiastic, the Bishop of Passau was the first Kammerrichter. His successor, however, was to be a count or secular prince. The judge was to be paid by the king and the assessors of, by the authorities that presented them to their offices. Thus the Kammergericht became a permanent institution, which, after various wanderings and a long stay at Speyer, finally settled down at Wetzlar, where it remained until the final dissolution of the empire. But no care was taken to secure that the court should administer a reasonable law or adopt a rapid or an economical procedure. The delays of the Kammergericht soon became a byword and the ineffectiveness of its methods very materially attenuated the permanent gain accruing from the establishment of an imperial high court nor were any efficient means taken at cologne or constance to secure the execution of the sentences of the imperial chamber max himself was not chiefly to blame for this he renewed at constance a wise proposal that had fallen flat at cologne this was a plan for the nomination by the king of four marshals to carry out the law in the four districts of the Upper Rhine, Lower Rhine, Elbe, and Danube, respectively. Each marshal was to be assisted by twenty-five knightly subordinates and two councillors. An under-marshal, directly dependent on the chamber, was to execute criminal sentences. But the princes feared, lest this strong executive should entrench upon their territorial rights. Now that the emperor, and not the estates, controlled the empire, a prince had every inducement to give full scope to his particularistic sympathies. Very weak, however, was the system of execution that found favour at Constance. It was thought enough that the Kammerrichter should be authorized to pronounce the ban of the empire against all who withstood his authority. If the culprit did not yield within six months, the church was to put him under excommunication. If this did not suffice, then Diet or Emperor was to act. In other words, there was no practical way of carrying out the sentence of the chamber against overpowerful offenders. The Diet of Constance placed on a permanent basis the closely allied questions of imperial taxation and imperial levies of troops. Brilliant though the prospects of the House of Austria now seemed, Maximilian's personal necessities only increased with the widening of his hopes. It cost him much trouble to maintain Vladislav of Hungary on his throne, though in the end he succeeded, and the betrothal of Anne, Vladislav's daughter and heiress, to one of Maximilian's grandsons, an infant like herself, further guaranteed the eventual succession of the Habsburgs in Hungary and Bohemia, March 1506. 
The death in the same year, September, of his son Philip of Castile had involved him in fresh responsibilities. Philip's successor, the future Charles V, was only six years old, and it taxed all Maximilian's skill to guard the interests of his grandson. He now felt it urgently necessary that he should cross the Alps to Italy. He should receive the imperial crown from the Pope. With this object, he besought the estates at Constance for liberal help. He gave his word that, if an army of thirty thousand men were voted to him, all conquests he might make in Italy should remain forever with the empire, that they should not be granted out as fiefs without the permission of the electors, and that an imperial chamber should be established in Italy to secure the payment of the Italians and their due share in the burdens of the empire. But these glowing promises only induced the Diet to make a grudging grant of twelve thousand men with provision for their equipment. The matricular system already adopted at Cologne was again employed to raise the men and the money. Henceforth, as long as imperial grants continued, this method alone was employed. But grave difficulties arose as to the quotas to be contributed by the various states. One of the chief among these related to princes, who were tenants-in-chief for some part of their territories, while they held the rest immediately of some other vassal of the empire. None of these problems was settled during Maximilian's life. The chief interest of German history shifts for the next few years more and more to questions of foreign policy. Maximilian's war with Venice, his share in the League of Cambrai, and the renewal of the hostilities with France, which followed the dissolution of that combination and the establishment of the Holy League, absorbed his energies and exhausted his resources. Very little success attended his restless and shifting policy. He did not even obtain the imperial crown for which he sought. Unable to wait patiently until the road to Rome was opened to him, Max took on February 4, 1508, a step of some constitutional importance. He issued a proclamation from Trent, where he then was, declaring that henceforward he would use the title of Roman Emperor-elect until such a time as received the crown in Rome. Julius II, anxious to win his support, formally authorized the adoption of this designation. For the next few years the Venetian War blocked his access to Rome, and later he made no effort to go there. He was now universally addressed as Emperor, and the time had passed when the form of papal coronation could be expected to work miracles. Maximilian's assumption of the imperial title without coronation served as a precedent to all his successors. Henceforward, the elect of the seven electors was at once styled Roman Emperor in common phrase and Roman Emperor-elect in formal documents. During the three centuries during which the empire was still to endure, Maximilian's grandson and successor was the only emperor who took the trouble to receive his crown from the Pope. As time went on, the very meaning of the phrase emperor-elect became obscure and was occasionally thought to point to the elective nature of the dignity rather than the incomplete status of its uncrowned holder. During these years of trouble in Italy, Maximilian was constantly demanding men and money from the German estates and was involved in perpetual bickering with the numerous diets which received his propositions coldly. The royal influence, which had become so great after 1504, broke down hopelessly as had the authority of the estates. The conditions of the earlier part of the reign were renewed, when the emperor's financial necessities once more led him to make serious proposals of constitutional reform. The most important of them was the scheme which, in March 1510, Maximilian laid before a well-intended diet at Augsburg. As usual, the emperor wished for a permanent imperial army, and long experience had convinced him that this could only be obtained by great concessions on his part. He now suggested that a force of 40,000 foot and 10,000 horse should be raised by the estates of the empire, including in them the Austrian hereditary dominions. 
In return for this, he promised once more to be established an efficient imperial executive. The empire was to be divided into four quarters, over each of which a captain, Hauptmann, was to be appointed as responsible chief of the administration. From these quarters, eight princes, four spiritual and four temporal, would be chosen who, under the presidency of an imperial lieutenant, were to act as a central authority. This body was to sit during the emperor's absence in the same place as the imperial chamber. While the emperor was in the empire, he had the right to summon it to take up its residence at his court. This proposal, although it had been described as the most enlightened plan of a fundamental imperial reform that the age produced, nevertheless found little favour with the Diet of Augsburg, which shelved it after the traditional fashion by referring its further consideration to another Diet. Fears for the territorial sovereignty may have partly induced the princes to bring the, about this result, but it seemed probable that the distrust of Maximilian was the real motive which led to the rejection of the scheme. Bitter experience had taught the estates that the emperor could be tied down to no promises, and could be entrusted with the execution of no settled policy. The best proof of this is that, as soon as Maximilian died, the Diet went back to the ideas of Berthold of Mainz and restored the Reichslegament. The obligations involved by Maximilian's participation in the Holy League speedily were forced upon him once more the necessity of consulting his estates. In April 1512, the emperor travelled to Trier to meet the Diet. Much time was now wasted and finally Max, in despair as to any transaction of business, went to the Netherlands, taking with him many of the assembled princes. A remnant of the Diet lingered on at Trier until Maximilian, returning from the Netherlands, prorogued it to Cologne. Here the emperor once more brought forward the plan of 1510. As it met with little approval, he proposed as an alternative that a common penny should once more be levied after the fashion adopted Augsburg in 1500, and that, by way of improvement on the Augsburg precedent, a levy of one man in a hundred should provide him with an adequate army. It was ridiculous to expect that the estates would grant an army four times as large as the levy of 1500, when no great concession like that of the Reichsregiment was offered in return. The emperor gradually reduced his terms, but after much haggling obtained no permanent assistance and only inadequate temporary help. One result of future importance came from the Diet of Cologne. This was a scheme for the extension of the system of circles, into which portions of the empire had been divided since 1500. Maximilian now proposed to add to the existing six further new circles, formed from the electoral and Habsburg territories which had been excluded from the early arrangement. A seventh circle, that of the Lower Rhine, was to comprise the dominions of the four Rhenish electors. An eighth circle of Upper Saxony took in the lands of the electors of Saxony and Brandenburg, together with those of the Dukes of Pomerania, and some other minor powers transferred from the original Saxon circles. Archbishop Berthold's greatest wish was realised in the proposal to include Max's hereditary dominions in the ninth and tenth circles of Austria and Burgundy. Thus every large tract of imperial territory became part of a circle, save only the foreign kingdom of the Czechs. Definite names were given to the older circles, and in each circle a captain appointed by it was empowered to carry out, with the help of a force of cavalry, the decisions of the imperial chamber. The estates, however, took alarm at the proposal and put the captains of the circles at the head of an armed force, and the result was that the division of the empire into ten circles never came into working order until after Maximilian's death, and even then certain small districts were left outside the system. The Diet of 1512 was practically the last of the reforming diets. The chief interest in the immediately succeeding period centred round the renewal of the Swabian League.
This confederacy had for a generation powerfully contributed towards the peace and welfare of South Germany. It had extended its limits until it included not only the estates of Swabia, but Rhenish and Franconian magnates such as the Elector Palatine, the Elector of Mainz, and the Bishop of Würzburg. But it comprehended within it very diversified elements, and the lesser estates looked with jealousy upon the increasing influence of the greater princes upon its policy. Conspicuous among these magnates was Ulrich, the turbulent and unruly young Duke of Württemberg. The split declared itself when the princes refused to take a share even in paying the cost of the destruction of the robber nest of Hohenkrayen in Hegau, which the League, inspired by the Emperor, now captured after a short siege. Accordingly, when the League was renewed for ten years in October 1512, the Duke of Württemberg, with his allies, the Elector Palatine, the Bishop of Würzburg, and the Margrave of Baden, were excluded from it. Excluded princes promptly set up a counter-league, which in 1515 received the adhesion of Frederick the Wise of Saxony. Thus, the element of disunion, which had prevented any organized combination of the empire as a whole, now also threatened to destroy the most successful of the local unions of parts of the empire. In the midst of this confusion, the last diets of Maximilian's reign were even more incompetent than their predecessors. The characteristic features of these years were the war of Franz von Schickingen against Worms and the feud between Ulrich de Württemberg and the Swabian League. The emperor was now conscious of his impending end. In the hope of furthering his grandson's election as his successor, he relieved Schickingen from the ban which had been pronounced against him. The aggrieved estates refused, in their own turn, to help against the disobedient Ulrich. New troubles now arose to complicate the situation. The early triumphs of Francis I deprived Maximilian of his last hopes of acquiring influence or territory in Italy. After Marignano, his military impotence was clearly demonstrated to all the world, while his shifty and tortuous diplomacy became a byword for incompetence. Since 1517, ecclesiastical troubles had assumed an acute shape by the crusade of Martin Luther against papal indulgences. But the old emperor still calmly pursued his way, finding amusement with his literary and artistic schemes, and occupying himself more solidly in preparing the way for the world empire of his grandson Charles, and in setting the administration of the Austrian hereditary lands on a more satisfactory basis. He was still as full of dreams as ever, and talked so late as 1518 of leading a crusade against the infidel. But the contrast between his projects and achievement was never more strikingly brought out than in the last months of his life. The great schemes of the Diet of Innsbruck were in no wise carried out. The imperial coffers were so empty that Maximilian could not pay the tavern bills of his courtiers. Bitterly vexed at the indignities to which his poverty exposed him, he left Tyrol and travelled down the Inn and Danube to Vels. There, prostrated by a long-threatened illness, he breathed his last on January 19, 1519. A review of the political history of Germany brings out Maximilian's character almost at its weakest, yet the impression derived from his calamitous European wars, his ineffective negotiations, and his pitiable shifts for raising money is even more unfavourable. Nevertheless, the unsuccessful ruler was a man of rare gifts and many accomplishments. He was, says a Venetian, not very fair of face, but well proportioned, exceedingly robust, of sanguine and choleric complexion, very healthy for his age. His clear-cut features, his penetrating glance, his dignified yet affable manner, marked him as a man of no ordinary stamp. He lived simply and elegantly, loving good cheer and delicate meats, but always showing the utmost moderation, and being entirely free from the hard-drinking habits of most of the German rulers of his time. 
He was the bravest and most adventurous of men, risking his life as freely in the rough chase of the chamois against the mountains of the Tyrol as in the tilt-yard or on the field of battle. He was an admirable huntsman and a consummate master of all knightly exercises. Good-humoured, easy-going, and tolerant, he possessed in full measure the hereditary gift of his house for combining kingly dignity and a genial kindliness that took all hearts by storm. He was equally at home with prince, citizen, and peasant. He had so little gall in his composition that, save Bertwald of Mainz, he had hardly ever made a personal enemy. Frederick of Saxony eulogized him as the politest of men, and the Countess Palatine found him the most charming of guests. The personal devotion of the younger generation of princes to the emperor did more than anything else to break up the party of constitutional reform. The Ruffelandsknechter called him their father. The artists and scholars looked to him for liberal support and discriminating sympathy. The Tyrolese peasantry adored him, and he was ever the favourite of women, whether of high-born princesses or of the patrician ladies of Augsburg or Nuremberg. He relieved the tedium of his attendance at long diets by sharing fully in the life of the citizens of the town at which the assembly was held. He attended their dances, their mummings, their archery meetings, himself often winning the prize through his skill with the crossbow and arquebus. Yet he was as readily interested in serious subjects as in his pleasures. His quickness was extraordinary, and the range of his interests extremely wide. He could discuss theology with Geiler and Trithemius, art with Dürer, Burgmeier, letters with Celtis or Poitinger. On all matters of horsemanship, hunting, falconry, fortification, and artillery, he was himself an authority. Yet all of these gifts were rendered ineffective by his want of tenacity and perseverance, by his superficiality, and by his strange inability to act with and through other men. Maximilian was ever restless, a hard and quick, though by no means a thorough worker, with real insight into many knotty problems and no small power of judging and knowing men. Keenly conscious of his own ability, and morbidly jealous of his own authority, he strove to keep the threads of affairs in his own hands, and seldom or never gave implicit confidence even to his most trusted ministers. He was a good-humoured and indulgent master, blind to the vices of his servants so long as they pleased him or were found useful to him. But the same habit of mind that impelled him to act with his own initiative led him to prefer ministers of lowly origin who owed everything to his favour. These he treated indulgently and well, but regarded as mere secretaries or agents for carrying out the policy which his master mind had conceived. Few princes of the empire enjoyed his confidence, and among these none of the first rank. Yet among his better-known servants were two counts of the empire, Henry of Furstenberg and Eitelfritz of Hohenzollern, Swabians both, as were so many of Maximilian's favourites. As diplomatist he preferred Burgundians to Germans, the smaller posts he commonly filled up with his favourite Tyrolese, but the most famous of his ministers was Matthias Lang, an Augsburg burgher's son, and by profession a churchman and a lawyer, who early became his secretary and served him with great fidelity for the rest of his life. Maximilian rewarded him nobly, forced the well-born canons of Augsburg to accept their social inferior as provost, and soon procured for him the bishopric of Gurk, the archbishopric of Salzburg, and the cardinal's hat. Leo X compared Lang to Wolsey, and wrongly supposed that both ruled their masters. Like Wolsey, Lang was accused of arrogance and venality, and became exceedingly unpopular. A like fate befell Maximilian's minor ministers, the Tyrolese Sörntein and Liechtenstein, and the Augsburger Gossenbrot, head of the Tyrolese financial administration. Public opinion regarded them as corrupt and greedy, and as ill-advisers of the popular emperor. 
His counsellors were rich, said a contemporary, and he was poor. He who desired anything of the emperor took a present to his council and got what he wanted. And when the other party came, the council still took his money and gave him letters contrary to those issued previously. All these things the emperor allowed. The removal of Maximilian's counsellors was one of the conditions imposed on Charles V before his election. Nor was their lot an easy one during the life of their lord. They often had a very hard task in finding out what the wishes of their very fickle and inconsistent master really were, and they were sometimes quite at a loss as to the direction of the policy which they were expected to carry out. Yet the emperor was ever ready to trim the sails of his statecraft to suit any passing wind of casual counsel. As Machiavelli said of him, he took advice of nobody and yet believed everybody. He was, in consequence, badly served. His mind was always running over with fresh ideas and impulses, which, when half carried out, were displaced by other whims of the moment. What he said at night he repudiated in the morning. No promises could bind him, not even self-interest could keep him straight in a single course for any length of time. True child of the Renaissance as he was, his emotional, sensitive, superficial, susceptible, and capricious nature stood in the strongest contrast to the pursuit of statecraft for its own sake by the politic and the self-seeking princes of Italy, who used the giddy and volatile Caesar as an easy tool for their purposes. Yet few of the most ruthless of Italians had occasion to stoop to greater meanness, more wanton lying, and more barefaced deceit than this model of honour and chivalry, and Maximilian's wiles were easily seen through and seldom affected their object. Too open-minded to hold strongly to his opinions, too versatile and universal in his tastes to deal with any subject thoroughly, he remained to the end of his life a gifted amateur in politics. He was at his best when strong personal interest gave free scope to his individuality. As a general, Maximilian was scarcely more successful than he was as a statesman, but as a military organiser, he did much to further the revolution in the art of war that attended the growth of the modern system of states. He improved the weapons and equipment of his cavalry, though the lightly armoured horsemen of the empire never seem in his days to have been able to hold their own against the heavier cavalry of France and Italy. More famous by far was the rehabilitation of German infantry, which owed so much to his personal impulse. In his early Burgundian wars, he began the reorganization of the German foot soldier, which soon made the German Landsknecht a terror to all Europe. Turbulent, undisciplined, and greedy, Maximilian's infantry proved admirable fighting material, brave in battle, patient of hardship, and passionately devoted to the king, whom they regarded as their father. For their equipment, he discarded the useless and cumbersome shield, and gave them as their chief weapon an ashen lance, some eighteen feet long, though a certain proportion were armed with halberds, and others with firearms that were portable and efficient, at least as compared with earlier weapons of the same sort. The rejection of the heavy armour that still survived from former days made Maximilian's infantry much more mobile than most of the cumbrous armies of the time, while, when they stood in close array, their forest of long spears easily resisted attacks of cavalry. However disorderly after victory, the Landsknecht preserved admirable discipline in the field. Maximilian's inventive genius was at its best when in improving the artillery of his time. However poor he was, he always found the means for casting cannons of every calibre. He invented ingenious ways of making cannon portable, and it was largely through his talents as a practical artillerist that light field pieces were made as serviceable in pitched battles in the open as heavy pieces of ordnance had long been in the siege of fortified places. Maximilian played no small part in the intellectual and artistic life of his time. 
The religious movement, which burst out at Wittenberg and Zurich in the last years of his life, lay outside his sphere. Though he was wont to discuss theological problems with interest and freedom, he was, in his personal life, as in his ecclesiastical policy, orthodox and conservative. Yet this orthodox emperor discussed the temporal dominion of the popes in an open question, and argued that the Lenten fast should be divided or mitigated, since the rude German climate made the rigid observance of the laws of the church dangerous to health. He urged on the papacy the reformations of the calendar very much on the lines afterwards adopted by Gregory the Thirteenth. He was pious and devout after his fashion, and was specially devoted to the saints, whom he claimed as members of the House of Habsburg. He had also inherited some of his father's love for astrology. More important, however, than these things is the large share taken by him in the spread of the new learning and the humanists in Germany. He reorganized the University of Vienna and established there chairs of Roman law, mathematics, poetry, and rhetoric. He fostered the younger Habsburg University at Freiburg in Breisgau under the direction of Konrad Keltis. He set up a college of poets and mathematicians as a center for liberal studies in Vienna. He called Italian humanists all over the Alps to his service. He was the friend of Pirkeimer, Poitinger, and Trithemius. He was devoted to music, and his court chapel was famous for its singing. In art, he was the most magnificent patron of the wood engraver. He had friendly relations with Dürer, and Bergmeier did some of his best work for him. He loved history and was a great reader of romances. He regretted that the Germans was not in the habit of writing chronicles, and interested himself in the printing and composition of works illustrating the history of Germany, and especially that of his own house. His vanity, perhaps the most constant feature in his character, led him to project a long series of literary and artistic undertakings. But, as was usual with him, his designs were far too comprehensive to be ever carried out. Only one of his literary enterprises saw the light during his lifetime. This was the dangers and adventures of the famous hero and knight Sir Toyodank, which Melchior Finzing published in 1517 at Nuremberg, and which sets forth in dull and halting German verse, illustrated by Schaufelein's spirited woodcuts, an allegorical account of Maximilian's own exploits during the wooing of Mary of Burgundy. What part of the composition belongs to Maximilian himself, and what the final redaction owed to the earlier designs of his secretary, Max Treitzerwein, and his faithful counsellor Sigismund von Dietrichstein, is not clear, but at least the general scheme and many of the incidents are due to the emperor. At his death, he left behind masses of manuscripts, fragments of proofs, and great collections of drawings and woodblocks to represent the other compositions which he had contemplated. In comparatively recent times, the piety of his descendants has given these works to the world in sumptuous form. Weisskunig, drawn up by Treitzerwein and illustrated by Burkmeier, describes in German prose the education and the chief exploits of Maximilian. In the triumph of Maximilian, the vast resources of Albert Dürer's art nobly commemorate the emperor in one of the most grandiose compositions that the wood engraver has ever produced. In Freidal, Maximilian's joustings and mummeries are depicted with the help of Burkmeier's pencil. Other literary projects, such as the lives of the so-called saints of the House of Habsburg, were only very partially carried out. In the last years of his life, Maximilian planned the erection of a splendid tomb for himself at Wiener Neustadt, and called upon the best craftsmen in Tyrol to adorn it with a series of bronze statues. The Austrian lands were not able to supply his wants, and before long he was ransacking Germany for artists capable of carrying out his ideas. To this extension of his plan we owe the magnificent statues of Theodoric and Arthur, which Peter Vischer of Nuremberg cast by his order. But this scheme too remained incomplete at his death. His last wishes were carried out as imperfectly as he had himself carried out his designs during his life. His request to be buried at Wiener Neustadt, the town of his birth, was forgotten. 
But among the ornaments of the sumptuous tomb erected over his remains by his grandsons in the palace chapel at Innsbruck, room was found for the works of art which he himself had collected to adorn his last resting place. In the heart of his favourite Tyrol, under the shadow of the mountains that he loved, the most glorious monument of the German Renaissance worthily enshrines the prince who, with all his faults and failures, had no small share in bringing his country into the full blaze of modern light. Was any real progress achieved by Germany during the reign of Maximilian? The failure both of the emperor and of the estates is painfully obvious, yet so much strenuous activity, so much preaching of new political doctrine could not pass away without leaving its mark in history. Very few actual results were at the moment obtained, but the ideal was at least set up, which later generations were able, in some slight measure, to realise. The policy of imperial reform seemed to have hopelessly broken down, but it was something gained that the Landfrede had been proclaimed, and the constitution and powers of the Diet settled and the Kammergericht established. The next generation took up and made permanent some of the measure which during Maximilian's lifetime had been utterly abandoned. The division of the empire into ten circles was actually carried out. The Aulic Council became the rival of the Imperial Chamber. Even the Council of Regency was for a short time revived. In the worst days of disunion, these institutions remained the decrepit survivals of the age of abortive reformation, which, with all their feebleness, at least faintly embodied the great idea of national union that had originally inspired them. And if all these institutions, such as they were, made for order and progress the peace and well-being of Germany, were much more powerfully secured by the strengthening of the territorial sovereignties which accompanied the reaction from the reformers' policy. The example set by Maximilian in unifying and ordering the government of the Austrian dominions was faithfully followed by his vassals, both great and small. The stronger princes become civilized rulers of modern states. The lesser princes at least abandon their ancient policy of warfare and robbery. The impoverished condition of Germany displays itself most clearly in the extraordinary development of the towns which Maximilian had himself helped to foster. Thus, the population of Nuremberg seems to have doubled during the 16th century, while the growth of material comfort and of a high standard of living were as marked as was the undoubted advance in spiritual and intellectual interests in art and in letters. But most important of all was the great fact that the national idea had survived all the many failures of the attempts made to realise it. Nowhere was its force felt more strongly than in Elsass and along the Rhine, where a genuine though, where a genuine though mainly literary enthusiasm responded to Maximilian's efforts at keeping a watch over the national borderlands. And if the age of the collapse of the German state was simultaneously the period of the revival of national scholarship, historical learning, literature, art, and language, it was the national idea that gave unity of direction and aim to the German Renaissance, and inspired all that was best in German Protestantism. To this national idea, the Reformation, while completing the political breakup of the German national state, gave new life, endowing Germany with a common language and inspiring her with fresh motives for independence. It was in no small measure, due to these influences, the influences of Maximilian's time and in a measure of Maximilian himself, that in the long and dreary centuries when there was no German state, there remained a German nation, able to hand on the great traditions of the past to a happier age, which could realise, though in a fresh shape, the ancient ideal of Bertolds of Mainz, that side by side with the German nation there should also be a German national state. End of section 32.